So I'm thrilled to be here today with Jane Frank and Kyle and Akins Irby, sorry. And we'll be talking about the carbon footprint of tea and really what companies can do to measure and their carbon footprint and address what they find. So Jane Frank is a vice president of strategic sourcing and sustainability at Numi Organic Tea, where she works with Numi's supply ecosystem from origin through manufacturing to build strong partnerships and identify opportunities for shared impact. Welcome, Jane. Thank you. And, and Kylan Aiken Irby, Aikens Irby, is Chief of Staff at Planet Forward, which is a leading carbon management platform for consumer brands to tackle climate change. She also serves as a board member for the Upcycled Food Association and a climate fellow for Amasia VC. Welcome, Kaya. So thank you both for joining. And I'm thrilled to be able to dive in a little bit more to this topic. And maybe Jane, could you start us off and what is carbon labeling? Yeah, important about definitely. It? Great, yeah, it's wonderful to be here. Um, thank you, Anne, for inviting us. And um, I'm gonna share a couple of slides just to kind of walk through um, uh, Numi's, how Numi is approaching this. Um, so let's see. Um, is that in full screen, like slideshow mode that you can see? No, oh, wait. not slideshow mode. Now it is. Now it is. Okay, great. All right. Um, oops. Oh, okay. So um, I think probably most people are familiar with Numi. We're an um, organic fair trade tea brand based in uh, Oakland. Uh, we've been around 23 years. And um, like many brands here, we're a mission-driven brand. Um, so these pillars will probably seem very familiar to you. Um, you know, we've really built our company for, since day one around um, promoting healthy living, regenerating the planet, and creating opportunities for all people to thrive. And so um, this climate work really nests within all of those. Um, and when we first started um, thinking about this, you know, I'm going to share a couple slides um, that gave us the context that we needed to know that it was time to act. And um, this is data from, I think this data is from 2010. There's not a whole lot of data on um, projected uh, climate impacts in teas and botanicals. And that's one of the limitations that can make it challenging for us to make you know, make good decisions about, you know, uh, business risks in the future and what action we might want to take right now. Um, but there is a, a great study um, put put out by the, um, the Tea Institute of India, looking at Assam in particular. And if you look up um, on the upper uh, right corner in Tinsukia, um, that is, oops, this is, a, that's where um, the majority of our black tea comes from. So all the black tea for our aged Earl Grey, for our um, golden chai, our breakfast blend, you know, this is one of our primary partners um, that we've worked with for years. Um, and, you know, we have a water project there and we visit them regularly. And, you know, this, this is, you know, this is where our tea comes from. Um, and we can see right now um, under current climate conditions, like, you know, this has been a great place to grow tea. Um, now, if we look forward to, um, this is a, a what's called a, um, a representative, um, I'm going to get this wrong, RCP, which is basically like a two degree warming world. So um, this is a, uh, the projection for tea suitability um, in Assam under a two degree world. Um, and we can see already that, you know, not only has most of the region been wiped out, you know, Tinsukia, where we source from is, is moved um, from very good to marginal. And then if we go to a um, two to three degree world, um, it's, it's pretty much 
non-existent. There won't be tea in uh, Tinsukia, you know, by 2050, if, if not before. So, you know, for us, this was, this is sobering information. And I think it hits home on so many levels as a human being, um, you know, obviously as somebody working in this industry, um, you know, there's, there's a lot to just kind of pause and, and absorb in that. Um, but I think it, it also provides motivation to say that like this is the time for us all to understand what our impacts are and how it's how it's um, landing how it will be landing in our supply chains and what we can do about it. So, um, you know, what we've done is uh, invested in um, climate or in, in measurement data, emissions data, and we did that starting in um, in 2018 or so. And now we go through an annual mapping process. So this or an annual emissions um, accounting process. So this is our 2021 um, carbon dioxide equivalent data. Um, you can see the scope one, two, and three is kind of the standard um, breakouts um, for uh, the GHG protocol. Um, scope one and two are uh, your owned operations. So uh, we, we use um, third-party manufacturing. We don't own our own facilities. So our scopes one and two are minimal. Um, and I think like most consumer goods companies, um, uh, the, the, all of the meat is in our scope three. So that's all of our purchase goods and services. Um, and scope three is further broken down, as you can see here, into subcategories. Um, and so we review that every single year. Um, we analyze it. We look what we look at where there's been changes and why those changes have happened. And then every year we um, we come up with a reduction plan um, to reduce where we can and then offset the rest. And that's kind of where we've been. Um, I just want to because I, I think it would be of interest to this group. I'll, I'll dive a little bit too into our um, botanical ingredients. Um, so this is actual um, uh, GHG results by ingredient. Um, and I think, you know, some pretty interesting things here we can see with the teas, the black tea, the green tea, um, our Sencha green, Sencha green tea, you know, all of the teas have a lot, have much heavier um, processing components. So all of that post-harvest, you know, drying, withering, you know, sorting, grading, all of that. Um, is really showing up here, whereas you have something like cinnamon and there's very little processing um, and all of the emissions really are in that co-packing, warehousing, shipping. So I think this is an important one uh, for the, the, the botanical industry um, and, and for the tea industry to really um, wrap our arms around is, is what's important to focus on is going to vary significantly by ingredient type. And for us, you know, for the most part, it's not going to be um, changes in farming practices necessarily especially you know if your if your foundation is organics right um so that you know i think it, it changes um some of the strategy and approach and and levers that we have to pull as an industry um and then this we, so what we've done you know as i said since we really started in probably 2016 with on this journey and then in 2019 was the first year that we um, measured and offset everything. And then as we've gotten more comfortable with our data, late last fall, um, we decided to um, put the data on the package. Um, and we had been talking about this for a number of years. And one of the, the variables that we had discussed was whether or not to put the boiling of the water on that there. And um, I'm really glad that we decided to do that. And, and when we made the decision to put our carbon data on the pack um, with this carbon label that we'll be rolling out to consumers um, starting this summer, um, we, um, we then reached out to Planet Forward. We wanted to audit our data to ensure that it was robust um, before we went out there and put it in the marketplace and put it in front of consumers. 
Um, so we went through a really thorough auditing process with Planet Forward, and then we also worked with them to develop the um, data point around the boiling of the water and that, that calculation. So, um, so yeah, really interesting. And then I'm gonna kick it over to Kyle to talk a little bit more about carbon labelings, carbon labels, and we can um, get into all of this more later. So here we go. So yeah, Kyle, it'd be great if you could follow up and talk about what Planet Forward brings to this discussion about the labeling and Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start just by introducing Planet Forward and then getting into a little bit of, you know, what, what are carbon labels? Uh, what do they look like? Where are they happening? Why are they happening? Um, and how prevalent is it? Which I think is a really interesting question for a lot of people because, you know, this is kind of a novel idea that's come into play and, and becoming more mainstream really as of, as of the last year. It's people like Jane pushing forward, you know, the conversation in places like Numi and kind of pioneers that are that are that are starting this but it's it's really picking up steam so we'll walk through a lot of that but my name is Kylan um, I'm our chief of staff at Planet Forward Planet Forward is uh, the, the leading carbon management platform for consumer products. So we're extremely focused on doing all of the carbon accounting and, and unlocking the power of climate action uh, for companies like, like Numi um, in the food and beverage space. We have the largest life cycle assessment database for North America for agricultural production systems. So I already saw some questions in the chat around, would love to hear a little bit about your approach for how you collected this data. Um, we can get into the nitty gritty of how all the calculations work and how you know you as as a uh, as an operator can pursue carbon labeling for your company but one of the key pieces is the data right knowing uh, how the water, the water that contributed to growing X particular crop or knowing about the energy type that went into this particular processing step. So where Planet Forward is valuable and how Planet Forward comes into this equation is that we have just really, really robust data on all of those pieces uh, for any company that's interested in understanding the carbon footprint of either their company or of their products. And um, I think another piece that's really important to call out is just that for any, you know, botanicals company for a tea company, 80 to 90%, you know, as, as Jane mentioned, of your footprint is largely going to be in your scope three and in your supply chain, and potentially in places that it's really hard to understand what exactly that information is. If you don't have one-to-one -one relationships with every single, single supplier, it might be difficult to understand uh, your exact footprint of every ingredient and every packaging material. So Planet Forward can come in and, and backfill all of that with our robust data sets and models. And that's what we're focused on doing to really unlock um, insights for people. But um, me personally, I am just extremely bullish on the concept of carbon labeling. And I'll share my screen as well to kind of put some of this into perspective. But I think that there are so many reasons why brands should pursue it. Um, and there is the obvious kind of more environmentally focused ideas around, let's see, can you guys see my screen here? Perfect. So I think when, when you think about any, any decision-making around climate, there's obviously all the environmental reasons, the, the things that feel right for us and good for us, um, which is really about fighting climate change. But there's also a ton of business upside for doing this work today as well. And so I want to talk about both sides of, of, of that coin. So when we think about, in general, the why is, you know, we, we should be 
tackling climate change. We're just dramatically behind on all of our climate goals today globally. Um, you can see here that there's uh, you know, a 90% footprint reduction that we need to achieve globally as, as people and as businesses. And we're really only at 5% against that goal today versus where we need to be by, by 2050. So there needs to be just a dramatic uh, speed up of that. And I think this idea of carbon literacy is a huge piece of that equation. People cannot think you know, about how to make more sustainable decisions if they don't have any reference point as to what is more sustainable. So when we think about empowering consumers to be part of the solution in general, carbon labeling is an opportunity to do that. And overall, uh, consumers are looking for brands to step up and do that. Um, we'll, we'll see everything that comes of Numi's decision to do it, but Planet Forward has been working with a number of brands that had um, done carbon labeling. We've been collecting firsthand data in the market about how people are responding to these things. And just by and large, consumers are out there asking for brands to be more sustainable. They're asking for them to take the lead on climate. They're asking them to demonstrate what it actually means to be sustainable, not a greenwashing claim, not some kind of sweeping, you know, we are X. It's like, show me, show me the data. And that's where carbon labeling comes into play. So today, when we think about CPG and tea and botanicals role within that, um, over the last five years, 55% of the growth of the overall market has come from sustainably marketed products, while they only made up 16% of the overall category, which I think is a pretty mind-blowing stat if you think about kind of where this is all going and what people are looking for and what is being rewarded in the market. And so Carbon labeling comes in as one of those opportunities to stand out and to set your brand ahead as somebody who's leading on climate, absolutely. Um, and there's a number of businesses that are that are doing it today. So on this slide, you can see some of those from Just Salad to Numi to Oatly to Corn to Cocoa Kind. Unilever recently committed to carbon labeling their um, full product portfolio globally. We have things called eco labels um, being piloted by Nestle and, and the European government in the EU to actually regulate this to have um, it be a requirement to put the carbon footprint of products on package. So there's a, a large uptick in terms of companies carbon labeling voluntarily, um, but there's also absolutely precedent for this along in Europe today for this being a requirement for brands in, in the near term. And largely that's being modeled against what we've seen in the nutrition labeling space as that being kind of the, the, the comparison of how this might take place and be regulated and, and take hold in a way that's comparable and, um, and standardized. And then um, quickly, I just wanted to call out one case study um, of we, we've worked with Numi, which Jane's been doing an incredible job of, um, you know, telling the story of but another company that we've been working with recently on carbon labeling is just salad. And um, they put the carbon labels of every single one of their meals in their stores and also um, provide the opportunity for customers to engage with them in their app and all of these different places, which is, I think, a really awesome demonstration of how carbon labeling can become a part of a customer's just relationship with you as a brand where it starts to feel really native and um, you know part of the reason that they interact with you overall 
And another thing that I reason I want to um, call out just salad is because we actually do have information from them around what the benefits of doing carbon labeling have been um, for sales and for the company. So we worked with them to calculate the carbon footprint of every single one of their meals, carbon label those meals, and then we even call out the lowest footprint meals in stores as climatarian options. Um, and when the climatarian uh, menus launched, there was a 126% sales increase week over week um, for that particular uh, set of meals, which is just really exciting because one of the things people always ask is, okay, sure, of course I want to do this, but like, what's the ROI of it? What's the business impact of it? How do I sell this to my CMO? How do I sell this to my CEO? And we're starting to get the data that people are really responding to it in a positive way, which is super, super exciting. That's great. Thank you. Um, I wanted to follow up with that, Jane, if you could dig in a little bit to what you found in, in your data, like how, especially for sourcing botanicals, which are small amounts from different regions of the world that you, as, some, as I think you said, can have little control over, you don't understand the complexities and yeah. aren't there. Yeah. Um, I think one of the most surprising things, I mean, T, Camellia sinensis is the majority of what of our business. Um, and I think one of the most surprising things there was to see like the sequestration that was happening in on, at the farm level um, already, which when the data came back, it was like, oh, of course, you know, like, you know, yeah, it, it made sense, right? It's basically an agroforestry system, you know, built on organic principles. Um, so, you know, that was exciting to see that show up. Um, and, uh, and then to see that the processing equipment was the primary source of emissions in our supply chain. Um, so that's, and that also makes sense, you know, um, if you think about like some of these remote areas, um, they're using, you know, pretty old school equipment. Um, they might be using diesel generators. Um, they might be running like charcoal kilns, um, you know, all of that is happening and that was where the primary emissions were. So that was that was super interesting and also challenging, right? Um, that's a hard thing to, to, to uh, create change around. Um, uh, and then, uh, yeah, so I think those were the two kind of biggest discoveries. Um, and one of the things that was particularly challenging about that was because I think we had aspirations of in setting um, and we spent a good year, I think all of 2018, I spent the whole year um, working on like in setting potential within a few of our um, key farming partners, like, you know, going there doing like deep dive surveys and what I, what we kind of, the conclusion that we came to is that like there just wasn't addition, enough additionality within the landscape to, um, to justify like the ROI on, um, you know, on some of the practices that we were thinking of putting in place. So there wasn't enough additionality um, available to, to justify an insetting project within that would put any kind of dent in our overall um, carbon footprint. Um, so yeah, there's been a lot of learnings along the way and kind of assumptions that have been debunked. I wanted to stay with you and follow up a little bit because this is also a question they wanted to know, like how actually did you get, gather the data around the farming and the tea and and for crops that weren't tea, weren't in an agroforestry, you know, I don't know, yeah. or things like yeah. that. So what we did, I mean, we used the 80-20 rule, which is pretty standard. Um, so we, well, the first thing we did was map our whole supply chain. So, you know, we've got 130 different ingredients coming in from like 30-ish countries, you know, 
on any given year. And, um, and of course, you know, for 60% of that purchase volume, we know exactly where it's coming from. We know the farmers, we know their kids, like we've been there, you know, we're, we're intimate. Um, but there was a whole nother chunk that we didn't, we didn't know. And, you know, probably that majority, you know, that was seven or eight different origins and, um, you know, producer groups. Um, so it was really uh, getting, getting the data on the rest of them. And, um, that required, you know, and sometimes that was going going through our first tier suppliers to get visibility into into second tier suppliers, um, and in some cases third tier suppliers, right? And so that really um, required a lot of trust, um, and you know, uh, you know, yeah, just a high trust relationship with our first tier suppliers that you know that that disclosure, um, you know, that they could confidently disclose that information to us. Um, and it was interesting. We definitely got a lot of insights from that. We we didn't. There were some ingredients we didn't realize were as important to us as you know as they were. You know, we because we spent so much time focusing on the Camellia sinensis. Um, so you know that kind of put into like basically our top eleven ingredients that make up eighty three percent of our purchase volume. We got really clear on those. Um, and then from there, we we worked with um, Soil and More, um, which is an organization in the Netherlands. Um, we chose them because they have a lot of experience working in teas and botanicals. Um, and uh, uh, Tobias, who I think maybe has worked with probably some folks on this call as well, um, he worked with us on our on our assessment. And so we did a farm level. He developed like a custom farm level survey tool that then we deployed um, to the farms. And in, in some cases, you know, like for China, we had it translated into Chinese. We worked, we have a, an organic um, auditor who we work with pretty closely there. Um, and so we actually had him, um, you know, taking the data, it, you know, or overlapping it with his farm visits that he had scheduled anyways. So kind of leveraging that to get the data back. Um, you know, in some cases we were going there, so we did it ourselves, right? So we kind of got all that primary data back for those 11 ingredients. Um, and then Soil and More, you know, they actually ran the model on it. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, added in the pieces. We'd been doing our transportation anyways um, with carbon funds since 2011. So we've been mapping that and calculating that. So we've kind of put together all these different pieces. Um, and then over the years, we've kind of added different custom, it gets a little complicated here, but we've added different like custom LCA data like through the years too, um, to try to have as much primary data as possible um, in our model. Um, and then where we don't have primary data, we use, um, as Kylan was mentioning, like we'll use um, databases, you know, where, where we don't have that like granular primary data. Yeah, oh, go ahead, yeah. Well, I was I was just gonna say I feel like it would probably I, one of the takeaways I want everyone to get from this call is that this work is totally doable and accessible and tangible and sometimes it can feel really daunting and overwhelming and so I wanted to start maybe just by even laying out like what the individual steps are of how you'd get from kind of point A to to having a carbon label and then you know, what, what goes into that and what your options are. Cause I'd say Numi's approach um, with getting primary data is, is the aspiration, um, but there are starting points for, for everyone. So in general, I mean, in terms of creating a, a carbon footprint for an individual pro 
product, um, you need to go through a carbon accounting process, which there's company level accounting, but really what, what you need for a carbon label um, is a life cycle assessment. So a product LCA, which I think is just important to start. And there's um, leading global standards for how exactly you should go about that accounting. So um, the PAS 2050 and the GHG protocols product standard and ISO 14044 series are kind of the global standards for carbon accounting at the product level which is important because a question that we get all the time is how do you know you took everything into account that was supposed to be how do you know that this is accurate how do you know that this is actually comparable to other people out there and so standards alignment I think is a really important piece of the whole carbon labeling conversation because if everyone's kind of willy-nilly you know calculating things in different ways we're not really achieving what we're trying to and being able to put forth a, you know a, a, an accurate number that says something about the management practices and the truth behind your product so that's really important. So there is very much a framework and a playbook as to what should be incorporated into your carbon footprint as laid out by those standards. And then when it comes to what makes up that, um, you know, for a, for a tea company, for example, it's your ingredients, it's your packaging materials, it's your processing steps, it's your transportation, um, it's the consumer use phase, like the boiling water, and then it's the end of life. And so, uh, getting the individual information for your product for each of those pieces. Um, you can do a number of ways. You can take the Jane Frank killer, I know everything about LCA's approach and do it yourself, which is honestly a heroic effort. Um, and it takes a lot of expertise. And that's kind of been the status quo today is that people need, you know, like PhDs and LCA's to do this work, or they're engaging with consultants that might be extremely expensive and take a very long time. And you have a stagnant, you know, output, and then you walk away and have to do it again, if anything changes. Um, and then there's kind of the emergence of, of climate tech, which is new to the scene, but in a really important piece of the conversation. My favorite quote um, just around climate tech in general is that uh, the technology industry's contribution to fighting climate change is not going to be some rocket science or, you know, some carbon capture technology. It's really just applying methodologies and mentalities around scalability to these issues. And so when you think about Planet Forward, for example, and, and our contribution to this space is to simplify all of those pieces and to make this work extremely accessible, um, lower cost and faster for the companies that want to do it so that everybody can. And that's really the only way that carbon labeling would get to scale in the way that we want it to, where you can walk into a grocery store and see every product carbon with a carbon label on shelf, is that if you don't need a PhD to do it and you don't need you know, perfect information and you don't need you know, years of preparation. And so, um, and I think that it's also a, a continuous improvement process. So if you wanted to come in and say, work with a planet forward on carbon labeling, you could come in today um, without perfect information on your supply chain, tell us what ingredients you're sourcing, what regions they came from or what supplier you're working with, if you know that. And then we'd go out with our LCA experts and go research that ingredient for you if we didn't already have something that was highly accurate and representative in our database. And so it's kind of a constant process of being able to add more for the benefit of everyone. So if we've gone out and we've already researched, you know, how one particular uh, tea is grown in one particular region, and we have all that data, the next person that comes in now has that and um, it, it starts to, to build on itself, which is just a really positive for, for the whole ecosystem. 
And then you have, as Jane said, you know, a hotspot analysis of all of, of all of the, you know, highest drivers across all of your ingredients. And so maybe next year we focus on the top 10% of your largest drivers. And we go out and we talk to those suppliers and specifically, and we get primary data from them. And we're kind of approaching it in a strategic way so that you're not burning out your team and you can really get to a point of having an outcome sooner. So um, the companies that work with us on carbon labeling, we can really get through an end-to-end -end process within a matter of, of weeks to months, depending on how many products you have. But it's a really, really fast turnaround to the extent that teams are kind of willing to, to work with us on just giving us the, the details of their information. Um, and that comes down to everything down to like what the farming practices that are used on farm, we can actually model in like regenerative practices without having to go out and take a soil sample on the farm. That's kind of like the power of the data, if that um, is helpful to put it into context. So I think that uh, the space is picking up steam, but we're also just constantly adding more efficiency into the process so that more and more companies can get on board and then it seems more and more accessible. Great, Jane, do you wanna add? From your perspective, I would just say, yeah, I mean, I think it's easy. Like, you know, when, when we started this, like, five, you know, six years ago, yeah, there was not a planet forward, you know, and, and you really had to go out there and, um, and kind of monkey wrench it all together yourself. So I think, um, you know, as Kylan is stating, like now more than ever, like the tools are emerging and developing to make this possible for industry, um, you know, to, to approach, I think. To follow up, Kylan, on your point, so is that how you all do the auditing? Or so, so, Numi has this t this data, and then the auditing for the label. What's that involved? Yeah, so we worked with Numi in kind of a non-standard way for Planet Forward, but um, Jane and I, we had like a real, real great conversation one day. She's like, you know, we, can, we need to get these labels out. I'm like, All right, we're going to find a way to make it happen as quickly as possible. <laughs> um, and she had already done so much of the legwork. So, uh, so we took the approach of auditing the work that she had done so that she had, uh, you know, a third party certification to say these labels are, are accurate and they've been done in alignment with the standards that I had called out. Out earlier so our team which has you know lca experts and um and and uh, climate scientists reviewed the work that had been done and there was a few tweaks that we made like for example thinking about including the boiling of the water or a few um corrections that we found around like transitional crops and um things that came up within the process that i think were uh good learning experiences for both of us so that was that was a non-standard way than how Planet Forward typically works with companies, which is where we come in kind of from the ground and we do the carbon footprinting where companies come in, they input their data to the Planet Forward platform. So you'd go in, we have a full uh, product LCA tool where you go in and you input your ingredients, you tell us about the farming practices that went into growing that ingredient, where it was sourced from. You tell us what your packaging materials are and the weight of your packaging materials. You tell us what processing steps your product go through, goes through. Um, and then you tell us any information you have about your distribution. And so we really make it like a templatized, very simple thing where you're just inputting your basic product information. And then on the back end, we're doing all of those, you know, calculations on, okay, interesting. Their manufacturing facility is here. Their distribution facility is here. We're calculating the route, we're calculating the fuel usage, all of the things that ideally you don't want to have to deal with um, outside of just telling us how you made your product. Um, so that's the way that we typically go about working with companies is just um, running the calculations ourselves from the ground up uh, using product information inputted by brands. Great. Um, 
Yeah, I would, I would like just piggyback a little bit on that. Like for those of you, you know, we're, we're all in, I think probably most of us are in consumer brands. So, you know, like last, you know, I'd been wanting to put this on the product for, for, for quite some time. And then last summer, you know, was kind of getting positive alignment with the marketing team and executive leadership. And so we had this like opportunity to kind of get it through, but of course it was slotting it into a packaging change that was happening. And, and so it was really like, okay, you know, okay, Jane, we can do this but you got to get us the data, you know, within like four weeks, because that's how long we have to finalize this packaging to get it uploaded, you know, and get it through like um, print proof and all of that, you know, uh, to even like get it in queue um, for the following year. So, um, you know, and that's where I think Planet Forward really shines is understanding uh, those timelines within um, food companies and, you know, and being able to deliver against them. Um, because that would be unheard of, I think, with, with just about any other LCA company out there. But there's a question that kind of follows on the labeling. It's um, Leah Greiner asked why you chose to display your carbon label based on an average across blends rather than by blend. Yeah. And just in general, how you decided, was that a complex thing to decide what to include on the label? And yeah. Um, no, that's a great question. And I want to clarify that, that that label I'm showing you there is our like kind of uh, generic label because so we so as I mentioned we've got those top 11 ingredients so where we had like for our age drill gray for example the label is specific to age drill gray um, and for our rooibos or rooibos chai those are specific to those blends um, but there are other blends um, that we didn't have where they fell outside of that 80 20 you know they were in the 20 percent so there we did use an average um, you know, an average value. So good question. Um, and then what we chose to include, well, part of it was like marketing saying like, we can't have every subcategory in here. We need to make it like, you know, approachable and understandable um, for the consumers. So we got to pick some buckets. Um, so really it was about, you know, what are the key buckets that we want to include um, that are going to make the most, be the most readable and relevant um, for anyone picking up that box of tea and we'll give them the best kind of information reflecting where those emissions actually are. So that's kind of how we came up with those buckets. Um, you know, I, of course, would love to get granular, but, if, you know, there's no room on the package and most people aren't, you know, don't want to go there. So, um, so that's kind of how we, how we arrived at that. And the boiling of the water was a big discussion, as I said, you know, it was really like, you know, do what, what will consumers know what to do with that? And does it matter? You know, I think that was the biggest decision point around it was, do we add the boiling of the water or not? Um, and really, and that's where the partnership with Planet Forward was so important because they were able to take our, we took our um, distribution data um, and, you know, of course we don't know how every household is boiling their water. Um, but we could, we basically used our distribution data across the U.S. and then um, Planet Forward took that and looked at um, average grid mix within that region. You know what what the emissions factors were for that particular grid zone, as well as the likelihood or like the prevalence of electric versus gas um, appliances in households and came up with a weighted average um, for each of those regions that was then kind of um, uh, averaged across across all of the regions, essentially. So, um, and that's really where where we needed, yeah, the the, the expertise at at Planet Forward to come in and figure that out for us. Um, 
And it's an awesome piece of data to have. And one of the, the reasons that I love it is that it gives us an opportunity. You know, we've gotten a lot more involved in climate policy and climate advocacy over the last couple of years. And um, that piece of information in particular, I think opens up a whole new line of conversation with our consumers around climate, um, around energy policy and why energy policy matters. Um, you know, and why, why uh, you know, I think it can sound like, you know, ah, nobody in Washington can agree to anything. Like, you know, what, what does that even mean to clean up our electric grid? You know, but then when you see it there and you understand how that relates to the choice choices we're making or, or, or maybe not making, we're kind of compelled into, you know, because of the infrastructure in our communities, um, then it becomes really clear, you know, why we need um, transformation on our electric grid and why we need, um, you know, at the both local level and the state level and the federal level, you know, we, we need action and we need our politicians to, to step up and we all have a, something to say about it, so. That's a great point. They, um... I want to stay, Jane, with you for a second and stick with go into processing a little bit because so processing in botanicals is, as you said, a surprisingly big, well, maybe not surprisingly, but a big contribution and one over which you don't have a lot of control. And so I'm curious how you're thinking about that, what to do yeah. with that data now. Yeah, so um, we're kind of due for a refresh on the data, and I'm curious to see what it looks like because this um, this process has instigated conversations with some of our key tea suppliers and accelerated like their planning and their transition away. Like for example, the uh, the green tea in China, um, it has accelerated their transition to. I think someone was posting something about low energy dryers to that upgraded equipment, um, moving away from uh, uh, charcoal kilns to electric kilns, um, fuel switching in some cases um, to, you know, like high efficiency wood pellets, which again, not perfect, but a step in the right direction. So um, we've seen that, you know, even just sharing this data back with our supply chain in places where they have the technical capacity and um, financial resources to do so, they have, you know, chosen to, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know if it's because of this, but it has like encouraged, you know, decision making um, to accelerate transition, um, which is really exciting. Um, I think there are other places it's going to be more challenging. Like, you know, we, we did spend some time thinking about like, what would it cost to like, if we just, you know, took took our rooibos production and transitioned all of that to, you know, solar, right? I mean, well, first of all, in South Africa, you're not allowed to plug any renewables into the grid. It's just, you can't do it, right? So then you've got to have an array that has enough storage capacity to run flawlessly 24-7, you know, and be a complete island, right? And that's about a quarter million dollars. So um, you know, that's like off the table for us. So that's, um, you know, those are the types of challenges that I don't have a clean answer for right now. And I think re do require kind of policy intervention and that's policy intervention outside of the United States, which makes it even more challenging, right? So, um, you know, these, these, yeah, I don't have a good answer for that. Um, but at least knowing like the dimensions of the issue creates an opportunity for people to think about it differently and, and for us to start to imagine something else, I think. Ellen, do you want to add anything to that part of the, you know, the processing manufacturing piece of things? Yeah, I, I think that I think, you know, even if it's not the 
even if you don't have the ability to act on it immediately, it's extremely helpful to know, right? And you can start to think about that as you scale and as you think about, you know, where your next facility will be built or how. And we've had a number of customers use the information around, you know, their current emissions intensity of their processing or, you know, the current breakdown of what's contributing to that be a, a driver in their thinking in terms of where they choose to, to build additional locations as they grow. And so I think, you know, there's there's pressure to do everything in year one, uh, you know, but that's not necessarily what's feasible. And without the information to know how those decisions will impact your footprint going forward, you're not going to be factoring that in. So I think that the more and more we're just operationalizing this in the way that we make business decisions, period, is is a win and and not beating ourselves up, you know, one thousand percent if it's not this year's change. Aaron Douglas asked, sort of following this, she wondered if there are other, what you all both think the best free low cost tools for scope three measurements are. And she specifically wondered if you had experience with the free B estimator from climateneutral.org. Um, we use that. So we're a climate neutral certified brand. So we do use it. Um, I think it's most, um, any of these like models are going to be most useful when when you can come to them with as much like granular data on your on your on your operations as possible. So there are tons of models out there where you can just that are basically like cost, you know, based on cost, right? Like cost emissions estimators. And you can like take all you could just take all your accounts payables and like plug them in there and get something back. And and that's I think like the most like if you really don't have anything like you're just flying blind like that you know, and that's kind of using um uh model you know just publicly available model data um and then if but if you can go a step further and you know like take transportation for example um and look at like you know you can figure out you know your average um you know kind of road miles and what kind of engine it was and what was the weight on that track right you've suddenly like transformed the quality of your data um, into something that's going to be uh, a much better decision making tool you know for you um, and so you know for example like uh, what planet forward can do is they can look at your specific ingredients and this was something that wasn't available when we when we did this in, in 2016 um, but they could you know they could take our ingredients and say okay well we don't have data on organic yerba mate from brazil so let's go out and take our expertise and we'll kind of build our own model around that ingredient that's going to be appropriate for you um, because there is so much differentiation um, within the botanicals industry you know it's really difficult so even like the b which we do use i don't use that for our ingredients because they don't really have um we have a, a chocolate product so i use like the cocoa bean one um but you know that they don't they just don't have like the like you can't go in there and find like chamomile you know um so you know that's where and and because that's the heart of our business you know i feel that it's very important to have that um be as specific as possible and it's therefore worth the investment to to get that foundation in those in those ingredients um, whether it's with a partner like planet forward or you know there's tons of folks out there but you know i think planet forward is awesome because because they're they're priced correctly for brands like ours and because they're um 
they're, you know, they're, they do it within a reasonable time frame that it, you know, makes sense for decision makers. So, um, you know, that's what I would recommend. I also like, you know, we joined the um, SME Climate Hub and, you know, I've been kind of paying a little bit of attention to, they have gone big in Europe and the UK first, and now they're kind of um, starting to come over to the US. Um, and their whole goal is to create tools, like a suite of tools for small and medium enterprises. Um, they do have a estimator that's available to SME Climate Hub um, uh, members, and it's totally free to sign up. Um, I took a look at it, like their, their estimation for um, our, uh, our operation, which was basically just like industry type, you know, size, location it was way off. Like it was, um, I think a quarter of what our actual emissions are. So, um, you know, that's where like, yes, there's lots of free tools out there, but you really want to understand what they're doing, what their, what their kind of foundation is and yeah. And, and kind of really make sure that you understand what they're offering and how it relates to what your, what's core to your business. Um, so proceed with caution, I think is my, <laughs> um, my <laughs> closing remarks on that. Yeah, I don't disagree. <laughs> um, and uh, I think it's really important to think about your goals and, and your outcomes in terms of what you want the information for. Um, if you want it for reporting, for one thing, it needs to be accurate. So many of the tools might not you know, meet that very basic requirement as Jane called out. But I think ideally a lot of us should be, you know, looking into our footprints for the purpose of reduction. You know, that should really be everyone's goal. And um, I think, you know, what Jane called out was the difference between economic data versus life cycle assessment data, which is a really important distinction to be able to make in terms of what's available to you for accounting purposes. And so many of these free tools, if not all, um, are and, and again, I'm not trying to, to, to bash that because it could be a really great starting place even just to orient yourself around how these processes work and, and what types of information it includes. But um, if you're taking an economic data-based approach, the only levers that are impacting your footprint are a generic emissions factor, which might be as generic as a country average. Um, and so if you think about you know, your specific chamomile versus even a country level average chamomile, if, um, if they have it at all. Uh, it's not gonna be, it's not gonna be reflective of your farming practices or any investments you've made in improving sustainability within you know, your supply chain and operations like that you're not getting accounting that's representative of the choices that you've made for better or for worse. And then that's attached to a spend factor. So when you think about once you, once you get the number back, your only ability to reduce that would be to change your spend, right? And that's not, we can't just stop making products. That's not really, you know, the goal here. And so life cycle assessment data is broken out across all of the individual pieces that make up a, you know, pound of chamomile. It's the growing practices, it's the processing steps, it's the transportation from farm to processor. It's, you know, any packaging that went into the transportation. It's all of the individual pieces that made up that chamomile. And so when you start to think about reduction, you can determine as Jane showed you, was it my farming practices or was it my processing steps or was it my packaging? Is it, if I lightweighted, if I, if I had less secondary packaging and the transportation from my chamomile from farm to, to processing facility is 
looked at what would change my, my footprint. That's the type of information you need as an operator to actually get to the point of being able to reduce. And that's why life cycle assessment data is so important. And so I think that um, the capabilities they have, the accuracy, all of that can be questionable, but I also think it's really important to understand what you even have the ability to do based on the types of data that are going into these assessments. And a follow-up with two, well, one, Aaron Douglas asked, asked the estimated cost range for single product LCA with Plan It Forward. Um, but but, while, but bef before you speak, I'm curious, so, uh, so you talked about what a company can look for to make sure the data is gonna be somewhat um, accurate. As a, a customer buying these products with, as more labels get on the product shelf, it seems like there's huge room for greenwashing. So what do we look for? Yeah, I, I can start, yeah. Jane, if you want to go build. for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so one of the most important things that a consumer should look for and, and that we should be disclosing as brands putting carbon labels out into the world is the scope. So um, that is one area where even if someone was standards aligned in their carbon accounting practices, they may have had a different scope of what was taken into account in their footprint. So we might have, for example, was it cradled a gate, meaning that it didn't take into account the end of life of those products? Was it just the ingredients and it didn't take into account the packaging materials? Was it a full, uh, you know, cradle to grave LCA of the full product? You know, those are the scope is something that's really, really important because you might have a, a lower footprint because you were actually only accounting for a percentage of what someone else was putting out there. So I think that's a, a really, really important piece. I do think that being able to have, you know, third party certification of these numbers is an important piece in the standardization and the enforcement of the accuracy and, and credibility of them going forward. We do really want to make sure that as we, you know, pick up prevalence of carbon labeling, that it's a system that people can rely on and a system that people feel does hold weight. Because if we keep kind of disarming every single solution that we come up with by, oh, you know, someone did it wrong and now it's greenwashing, we're taking away our power to, to really be able to, to push things forward. Like carbon labeling in a perfectly executed system should be able to, you should be able to walk into a store and know that Numi is a great company. Like they really invest in, you know, the sustainable farming practices of growing their tea and they have made significant investments in having you know the the packaging that they've that they pioneered and all of these things that they should be rewarded for in their carbon footprint and if we don't have a system that's kind of enforcing that standardization those types of things won't be called out and they won't be rewarded for it in the way that they should which is how we would love the system to work um in in a in a an ideal setting. So I think scope is really huge. I think third party sign off and review of calculations is really really huge as well. Before I ask Jane the same question, do you want to share on the cost? Yeah, so I, um, for one thing, I will say that everyone is welcome to talk to me afterwards and, and uh, 100%. Um, our, the way that Planet Forward operates is on a subscription basis. So we offer subscriptions um, for starting as up, up to 10 products per year and kind of ranging based on uh, how large your product portfolio is. Kind of happy to have individual conversations. That's probably the best place to go about it. But I will just say that we in general have a commitment to accessibility. We have a commitment to um, you know, making this work available for everyone. So we offer discounts for startups and things like that. And so happy to kind of talk about it offline. Jane, did you want to add any more to the 
the question about. I know I was going to say scope also. <laughs> I would probably say scope and and um, and uh, you know auditing of the the numbers. Um, yeah. There's one question, Jane, for you from um, Taylor Clayton, who wondered if the low ROI that you mentioned for in-setting projects, you just had questions if you could clarify, was that more than yeah. monetary factors or? So what we figured, like what we were looking at was like, we had the option to improve. It was mainly around like improving uh, manure management and um, compost, like uh, actual, like composting practices, um, like uh, cover cropping and shade trees are, you know, that's there. So like, you know, the only lever we really had to pull was, you know, investing heavily, like in improved manure, um, management. Um, and when we thought about like the cost, like we costed out, um, with soil and more, like what, what those workshops would cost, like what, you know, what that investment would be for one farm, um, to, to get something started. Um, and like, you know, very quickly, it was, it was, it was pretty expensive compared to a negligible reduction in, um, you know, in actual um, uh, emissions. So, you know, it, it was like best case scenario, we maybe could have, um, you know, sequestered an additional, like, you know, it was, it could have been anywhere from like 30 to 60 tons of, um, of CO2E. And, even then it's like additionality is a little bit tricky in a farm setting like that because you're like well you know this is something that's improving their farm practices anyway so is this is this considered like would they be doing this anyways like how do you really demonstrate that this wouldn't have happened otherwise um, without an intervention right um, so you know that's that's where you know we decided that um that money was better used in other areas, like for example, investing in our plant-based packaging, which has reduced our packaging footprint significantly. Um, so if we kind of take, we don't have a, an infinite amount of resources. So we had to kind of look at it and be like, okay, we have a finite amount of resources. Like, you know, we would love to do that soil manure project with that farm for many reasons, um, but it's not necessarily gonna get us the return um, in terms of like what we're trying to achieve with carbon reduction and we're already doing really well with carbon reduction on the farms. So is there another place where we should be focusing that investment where we're going to get a bigger ROI? It's great just to see the power of having that kind of data and then you have information you need to make decisions. Yeah. Um, we're coming to the end and there's a few more specific questions that maybe if you all have a moment to check the Jane, there's some specific things for you. But I wanted to, and before asking you all one final question, for those of you in the call next week with Sustainable Herbs Program members, we're gonna have a brown bag discussion where Jane will come and really dig in a little bit more to the tools and how botanical companies can kind of work together or to address some of these challenges and opportunities in the botanical supply chain. So if you're not a member, you can contact me and find out how to join. But I wanted to ask in closing, um, Jane, I'll ask you first, what you've taken on is to me, mind-bogglingly complex. And I wanted to personally, what has really driven you and keeps you motivated in when it gets overwhelming? Yeah. Um... That's like, that's an, that's an, that's a, yeah, that's a emotional question, you know, um, 
you know, it's my kids seeing them every day and just thinking about the world they're going to be in. It's, you know, like I got these from the garden yesterday. These are the, I didn't think I was going to get another batch of sweet peas and they smell so good and I love them. And, um, you know, just having that joy in my, in my home and, you know, that, that, that was, you know, the, the surprise of finding that in my garden and, um, just, you know, really honoring that, you know, that place, um, where I feel most deeply connected um, to life and um, and really orienting, you know, my activities, you know, in service to that. And that's what motivates me. Thank you. I, I also wanted to, when we spoke before, and also when you were talking about that data that you got from Assam and how this is people's lives on the other side of that data. I wanted if you wanted to. Yeah, that's a, you know that's a big piece of it. Is you know you look at that. I you know I can't look at that map without thinking of, you know, the people I've met in the fields and, um, you know, how, you know how how this will be impacting, um, you know, their lives. Um, and what responsibility do we have? You know, we are a mission-driven brand, but this is a, a new uh, challenge for us, and one that is existential. You know, what what does that uh, responsible business relationship look like in the context of this change? Um, and you know, how do we meet that? Um, you know, meet that in an ethical way. Thank you, Kylan. Yeah. Um... I just, I appreciate you, Jane, so much, and you as well, Anne, and, and I always feel, honestly, just blessed to do this work, like, so deeply. I don't actually know, I was having a conversation last night, like, I don't really know how I would move through the world as a happy person without it, because it's so important to me to be able to show up every day and put my energy towards, ideally, the solution, um, because it does feel so dire, but, I mean, I have been an, an impact-oriented person from my origination. <laughs> my, my parents actually met at Earth Day, which might have made it prophetic that I ended up this way. Um, but I grew up in California. I grew up, you know, like in the ocean and, and in the mountains and in the hills. And that to me was more of a home than, than anywhere. And, um, you know, really early on in my career, I actually started doing reef conservation work. And if we think about some of the places around the world or, or um, the environments that are most heavily, not necessarily most heavily impacted, but demonstrating actively the impacts of climate change most, most clearly, reefs is, is one of them. And so I was, you know, super young and, and having just breakdowns on on the daily thinking about how incredibly terrifying it is that if this is what's happening to you know some of our most incredible underwater worlds like what comes next and then what comes next and then what comes next and to the point where I have true anxiety attacks in, in a frequent way um, I think climate anxiety is, is really real and especially for kind of you know younger generations in particular that are growing up in the world where that's all they hear all the time it was different to kind of like pursue it and feel like it was a passion when I was younger now it's like 100% just the imperative. And so I, I see working on climate as an incredible privilege that our, that this moment in time has, like 
in a, in a little bit, it would be too late. You know, we have the only real window to still do something about this, as I showed on that slide before. Like we we have <laughs> the exact framework that says if you can if you can pull this off in the next twenty years, then you then you might make it right. But if you don't, then you don't. And so I I just don't know what else I would do um, with that knowledge. Thank you all both so much. I really appreciate like the big picture, the emotional, you know, the motivating factor and the concrete data and steps. So thank everyone, all of you for joining and thank you both Jane and Kylan. And we will share a copy of the recording tomorrow and probably and Kylan, I think shared her email contact. And if you need to contact Jane, I'm sure she'll share it too. Yep. But thank you thank both. Thank you, Anne. Thank you so much, Anne. And thank yeah. you everybody for coming. Bye. Bye.